You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 13th of December, 2023, on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, accusations that the Israeli Prime Minister not only knew about, but encouraged Qatar to fund Hamas. We'll explore claims that Benjamin Netanyahu approved the money to destabilise Gaza and the West Bank. Also ahead. The eyes to the right, 313. The nose to the left, 269. (laughs) The UK government succeeds in pushing through a law to enable it to send asylum seekers to Rwanda. But at what cost to Rishi Sunak to secure the unity of his party? Also ahead. You know, fundamentally, there is a choice to be made. You can't both be for Donald Trump and for the Constitution. You have to choose. The daughter of the former vice president, Dick Cheney, sounds the alarm about the consequences of re-electing former president Donald Trump in the US. And an anime film tops the box office in North America. We'll examine whether the success of The Boy and the Heron is a sign that Japanese cinema is making more permanent gains in the rest of the world. Plus the papers from Paris and the latest business news too. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. First, a quick look at what else is happening in today's news. A draft of a global agreement has been published at the COP28 summit in Dubai, omitting the reference to the phasing out of fossil fuels. The UN General Assembly has voted in favour of a resolution demanding an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. This resolution is non-binding. And an assessment by the US military reports that nine out of ten Russian personnel deployed at the start of its invasion of Ukraine, or 315,000 people, have either been killed or wounded. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, it may well have played host to and indeed played a key role in the negotiations towards a brief ceasefire between Hamas and Israel. But now Qatar is the focus of investigations into the transfer of millions of dollars into Gaza to help to fund Hamas. What's more, it's not just the role that Qatar played. There are now claims that the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, may not only have known about this, but may even have encouraged the payments. Well, I'm joined now by Greg Karlstrom, who's a Middle East correspondent based in Dubai. A very good morning to you, Greg. Hi, good morning. So just outline the, these claims. It's billions of dollars over roughly a decade paid by Qatar and many, much of it in cash. Right. And they're not even claims. I mean, this is something that, to be honest, has been has been sort of an open secret for years, and the Qataris will even admit to it. Uh, this has been going on for four or five years at this point. Every month, uh, a Qatari diplomat would travel into Gaza, bringing with him a suitcase that contained up to $30 million a month. And that money was distributed uh, in a few different places. Some of it went to pay for fuel that was imported to Gaza to operate the, the sole power plant in Gaza. Uh, some of it was distributed as welfare payments to poor families in Gaza who would receive, I think, usually about $100 a month per family. 
Uh, and then some of that money went for budgetary support for the Hamas-run government in Gaza. So it was used to uh, pay the salaries of civil servants who, who worked for the government in Gaza. So this was money that would fundamentally change life in Gaza. It did. I mean, that was the way that this was originally pitched uh, when the when the idea was first proposed that, you know, this is a territory that had been under, by that point, 10 years of stifling blockade by both Israel and Egypt and a territory where, you know, the vast majority of the, the 2 million plus people who live there were dependent on different forms of international aid from the UN, from charities, from, from other donors uh, to survive. And so even though the numbers might sound small getting $100 a month per family for the average family in Gaza that that was a major increase in their earnings and it made a major difference in their lives what was the original purpose of of this money i mean qatar denies that the funds were ever intended for hamas they simply say that this money was meant as aid to help pay the salaries of the workers who were in in an enclave which was cut off from the rest of the world Right. That, that is what they have said. I was in Qatar actually over the weekend and, and spoke with a very high-ranking official there who said exactly that. This was meant as welfare, as humanitarian aid. None of it directly went to the government, to, to Hamas, let's say. Some of it, of course, uh, went to pay the salaries of the government. And of course, you can say money is fungible. And so if you're helping uh, Hamas pay its civil service payroll, then you're freeing up money that it can use for other priorities. But yes, for the Qataris, this was just seen as a humanitarian initiative. They've also put a lot of money into reconstruction in Gaza uh, after the war in 2014, which was then the longest and biggest war between Israel and Hamas. Uh, the Qataris pledged about a billion dollars for reconstruction. They rebuilt the coastal highway in Gaza. Uh, they built some new residential communities. And they saw these cash transfers as part of that broader aid package for, for the territory. And this was done not just under the nose of Israel, but with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's encouragement. It was. Uh, I mean, again, Israel, of course, they knew about this. There was a Qatari diplomat who went through an Israeli-controlled border crossing into Gaza every month. So it was done with their blessing. And for Prime Minister Netanyahu, there were two reasons for that. One was a more pragmatic reason, which was to try and keep things calm in Gaza. And he thought that allowing this money in, uh, making life lar marginally less miserable for the people living there, uh, would dissuade Hamas from firing rockets and from going to war with Israel. And that was an idea that had a lot of support, not just from the prime minister, but from the Israeli army and, and other people in the Israeli security establishment. His other reason for doing it, which was rather more cynical, is that uh, Netanyahu has spent his entire career trying to prevent the emergence of a Palestinian state. And you have two Palestinian governments. Uh, you have the one in the West Bank that is committed to negotiations with Israel, to nonviolence, to a two-state solution. And you have the Hamas-run government in Gaza that is run by a group that for decades has been committed to the destruction of Israel. So for Netanyahu, he has done everything in his power for many, many years to weaken the government in the West Bank, uh, imposing sanctions on it, refusing to negotiate with it. At the same time, as he has negotiated prisoner deals with Hamas, uh, approved the transfer of money to Hamas, that has a predictable effect of, of making the government in the West Bank weaker and less popular and making Hamas stronger and more popular. And then Netanyahu can turn around and say, well, look, see, we don't have a partner to negotiate with on the Palestinian side. Was there a genuine 
feeling then that Hamas could not only be tamed with money, but actually that, that there could be a longer game plan for Netanyahu here. And you mentioned the fact that he, you know, he he wanted to avoid the creation of of anybody stable to have any kind of negotiation with. One wonders how that's going to go down with the Israelis. On the first part of that, uh, yes, that was the theory that Hamas could be bought off with money. And again, not just Netanyahu's theory, but until October 7th, a, a theory shared by uh, much of the leadership of the Israeli army or the Shin Bet, the internal security service, they all thought that uh, the Hamas leadership had lost interest in large-scale confrontation with Israel and that it was focused on governing Gaza and, and that giving more money to Gaza would allow it to, to keep the peace there. That was, of course, proven spectacularly wrong on October 7th. For Netanyahu, I don't think there was any sort of longer-term uh, strategy here. I mean, I think his idea, which he's been very clear about in, in both public and private statements, is that he thought the Israeli-Palestinian conflict could be managed indefinitely, that the sort of status quo that we saw uh, pre-October 7th, where, yes, there were occasional flare-ups in Gaza, occasional rounds of violence in the West Bank, but nothing major, nothing like the Second Intifada or the wars of the 20th century, uh, that that would just persist indefinitely, that Israel could maintain its occupation indefinitely and not feel any significant pressure to change that status quo. That's been his theory of the conflict for many years, and, and that's the theory that he was operating under when he approved these payments to Gaza. The New York Times reports that this was something that, as you have mentioned, that was the sort of a, a the worst kept secret in the region. But the fact was that these decisions to allow this to happen were made by political leaders, military officers, intelligence officials, all of whom were saying that Hamas will never and could never mount the kind of attack that it ended up carrying out on the 7th of October. How does this now change things? Because will the, the, the political fire be targeted directly at Benjamin Netanyahu? Or will there indeed, is there a sense that everybody was involved in this plan? It's being targeted at everybody. But for Netanyahu, he is desperate to divert that attention away from himself and, and to other people. So what we've heard since October 7th is uh, anyone in a position of responsibility in the Israeli army or security services has come out in public uh, and made a statement of, of regret and said that they made a mistake in not just their operational failings in the, the weeks and months leading up to October 7th, but in their conceptual understanding of Hamas and its capabilities. They've accepted responsibility for that. And it seems clear that much of the military and security leadership is going to resign after the war, uh, whenever the war in Gaza ends. Netanyahu hasn't done that. He's he's made some rather mealy-mouthed statements that come close to taking responsibility, but don't really do it. And uh, behind the scenes, he and his people, his allies in politics and in the media, uh, have been briefing to Israeli journalists that uh, he doesn't bear any responsibility for this, that he was actually trying to urge a different policy, but the military and the security leadership were determined to go ahead with this policy. He's trying to shift blame elsewhere to try and preserve his political career. I don't think that messaging is going to work. I think much of the Israeli public holds him personally responsible for this. And I think uh, whenever there's an election after the war, he's going to suffer political consequences for it. He's also facing consequences internationally. In the last 12 hours, we've seen the UN General Assembly voting in favour of a re resolution demanding an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in 
Gaza. Um, that is a non-binding resolution, and I think only about three quarters of the body's members voted in favour of it. Um, the the headlines this morning is this is underscoring the isolation of Israel uh, and indeed the United States on the on the global in the among the global community. But also we have the U.S. President Joe Biden at a fundraiser warning that Israel's losing global support, saying that Netanyahu needs to change. I mean, this is exposing again this rift between the two leaders, which is getting worse and worse. From those events in the last 24 hours, Greg, is there perhaps a sense that the view of the outside world towards Israel and its actions in Gaza is changing? I think Israel is very isolated in terms of the world. And this, I mean, it's not the first time the General Assembly even has voted in favor of a a resolution calling for a ceasefire. Most of the world has been clear for weeks, if not months now, that they want this war to end. But uh, the only vote that really matters as far as Israel is concerned is the American vote, because America provides not only diplomatic support, not only military aid, but Uh, the munitions that Israel is quite literally using to fight this war in Gaza. Uh, And the Americans last week at the Security Council, they vetoed a resolution calling for a ceasefire. So they're not there yet. But when you point to these disagreements between Netanyahu and Biden, which are becoming uh, increasingly public, I I agree that those disagreements are getting deeper. The Americans are uh, very concerned about the way Israel has prosecuted this war, and particularly uh, since the end of last month's uh, brief truce, the way that Israel has gone into southern Gaza, densely populated southern Gaza, uh, with the same sort of heavy bombardment and heavy ground campaign that we saw lay waste to northern Gaza. The Americans are very concerned about that. They're also very concerned about Israel's total lack of a strategy for what happens after this war, who's going to take power in Gaza, how long is Israel going to occupy the territory. Uh, What I have heard from from both American and Israeli contacts is that the Americans have said to the Israelis in private, this needs to be done by the end of the year. You have a few more weeks of of heavy fighting, but that needs to wrap up by about the new year. And, And the Israelis, I think, have taken that message. So we may see in a few weeks, it shifts away from the heavy fighting uh, that we've seen over the past two months and uh, transitions to a, a much lower intensity phase of, of conflict because the Americans really are running out of uh, support and running out of patience, I think. Greg Carlstrom, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. here in London. Now, how to deal with illegal immigration is a perpetual problem for Europe and in particular for the UK. Last night, the latest attempts by Westminster to come up with a once and for all plan to stop what it calls the small boats almost splintered the government. A bill called the Rwanda Bill passed, however, in the Commons last night, but not before deep divisions within the Conservative Party were laid bare. I'm joined down the line by Tim Bale, Professor of Politics at Queen Mary's University, London. Very good morning to you, Tim. Good morning. So the Rwanda plan was the intention to what? Send uh, asylum seekers to be processed in Rwanda. And the bill that got through last night almost split the government in not one, not two, but in about six. (laughs) 
Yes, I mean, the Rwanda plan essentially is supposed to operate as a deterrent to people crossing the channel from France in these small boats. Uh, it's important to uh, let your audience know that not only will their claims be processed in Rwanda if ever this goes ahead, but even if their claims for asylum are granted, those people will actually stay in Rwanda. They won't ever come back to the UK. The problem uh, for the government was that the UK Supreme Court decided that Rwanda was not a safe destination. This bill is intended somehow, along with a treaty we've just signed with Rwanda, to declare that it is in fact safe and to um, cut off the routes for legal appeals uh, from people who might be deported. Some people on the right of the Conservative Party are concerned that the bill still leaves open the possibility that in exceptional circumstances, and you can imagine there are a lot of exceptional circumstances when it comes to refugees, that uh, those people in danger of deportation to Rwanda will still be able to appeal uh, using international law, using human rights law uh, against their deportation. Uh, the government has tried to assure them that that won't happen in very many cases. But on the other hand, there is a bunch of Conservative MPs who feel that the bill has already gone as far as it possibly can push the envelope in terms of international law. And they're saying it, it mustn't go any further. So what happened last night was that the, if you like, the hard right of the Conservative Party, the ones who want to see the bill even tighter than it is now, abstained. They didn't vote against, so the government got the bill through on second reading, but the omens aren't good because the hard right is suggesting that unless the government moves towards its position, it will vote the bill down at a later stage. The, the difficulty we, that, that Richie Sunak, the Prime Minister, now faces is that not only do they have the hard right, but these are divided into different groups, so-called uh, five families, um, which, as far as I could remember, is referring to New York mafiosi groups, but uh, they, they seem to sort of bear little resemblance in action. But their names, the European Research Group, ERG, New Conservatives, Conservative Growth Group, Common Sense Group, Northern Research Group. These are all small factions which have a, a majorly destabilising influence within the Conservative Party. That's right. And in some ways, this is a legacy of Brexit when the ERG, the European Research Group, essentially held Theresa May to ransom and eventually in some ways got rid of Theresa May by voting against her withdrawal agreement uh, with the EU. I think that has given uh, other MPs uh, a source of inspiration and they feel, even though the government has a majority, which of course Theresa May didn't have, uh, that they can exercise this kind of blackmail or, or, or veto uh, power over the government if there's something they don't like. And they are absolutely convinced, people from those groups, that immigration is the key to winning back some of the voters that the government has so clearly lost. And it's important to realise, of course, that this is a government that is, say, 20 points behind in the opinion polls and is looking for something, anything, that might bring some of their 2019 supporters back on board. And many people think, especially on the hard right of the Conservative Party, that immigration is that magic bullet. Well, this is the interesting thing because... As I think anybody who's ever sat in a law lecture for 25 minutes knows that no parliament can bind its successors. So how likely is the Rwanda plan to actually going to go into operation? <laughs> that is the, the $64,000 question. Well, look, um, there are multiple opportunities for the hard right of the Conservative Party to uh, bring this bill down. They can do it in programme motion. They can do it at report stage, committee stage. It will have to go through the House of Lords. It will encounter problems there for sure. Um, I think it's going to be a very close run thing uh, whether the government could eventually even get a single plane taking off with deportees to Rwanda uh, before the next election. 
Uh, and even if they do, it's not clear that that will stop the boats. And even if they manage to stop the boats, which they won't, it's not clear that it will win them an election. Tim Bale, thank you so much for joining us. You're listening to The Globalist. We're live on Monocle Radio. Now, a draft of a global agreement has been published at the COP28 summit in Dubai. It omits the reference to the phasing out of fossil fuels. The proposal talks about transitioning away from fossil fuels. But if adopted, it marks the first time in three decades of COP climate summits that nations agree on a conservative move away from oil, gas and coal. Well, Akshat Rati is a Bloomberg climate reporter and author. Joins me now. Very good morning to you, Akshat. Very good morning. I also have breaking news, which is that actually the draft deal has been adopted. Um, And so this will be the first time that transitioning away from fossil fuels has made it to a climate summit's decision in 28 years. This is something that has taken the the usual wrangling is, is to be expected. But this idea of not phasing out fossil fuels, but transitioning away from fossil fuels, this was a really, really big problem for many people, wasn't it? It is. But I think we should look at the big picture first, which is that the doctor has diagnosed the problem 30 years ago and we haven't really done anything about it. Uh, We know climate change is here and causing all kinds of problems. And we know that fossil fuels are burning of them. It's the problem that is creating it. Uh, But until now, because of a few countries here at the COP meetings, the mention of fossil fuels, the action to move away from fossil fuels was never mentioned and never agreed on by 200 countries. So yes, it's not the perfect language, Very rarely do you get the perfect language out of a United Nations summit. But this goes much, much further than anything we have had in the past. Um, What difference do you think this will now make in terms of driving the agenda? And because we have an adoption of a a resolution, um, when will we start to see things happen? So the best way to think about it is what happened after the Paris Agreement in 2015 was adopted. For a couple of years, you didn't really see much movement. But since then, essentially, the Paris Agreement is now being talked about and its direction being used to make board level decisions. Companies and countries have committed to a net zero by 2050 because of what was written in Paris. And so in a similar fashion, you should expect, this is what experts I've spoken to have said, the decisions that are being made here today, the wording in that document that's just been adopted, will be talked about in boardrooms. They will take into consideration the transition away from fossil fuels as a signal in the major business uh, calls that they have to make over the next decade and decades to come. Akshat Rati on the line. Thank you very much indeed for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. Let's continue now with today's newspapers. Joining me from Paris is Agnès Parier, who's journalist and author of Notre Dame, the Soul of France. A very good morning to you. Good morning. Um, We've just heard that a draft resolution has been adopted um, at COP28. I mean, how is this being covered where you are, Agnès? Well, it's interesting, you know, um, it's all about translation. Um, Because, I mean, there's a lot of uh, 
talk in uh, those uh, morning's newspapers in France about how uh, best you can uh, translate the, the new word that seems to satisfy uh, many more people this morning, which is transitioning away. Um, and of course, it's different from the phasing down or the phasing out uh, from uh, fossil fuels. Uh, but it looks as if, um, you know, the, the translators are going to scratch their heads. Uh, but uh, the, the first echoes, at least from uh, countries in, in Europe, such as Norway or, or Sweden, they said they were very satisfied with the transitioning away and that it was the first time that uh, the word or the concept really uh, was used. So, uh, so they are happy. But it's interesting that uh, Anglophone, uh, you know, NGOs or, or, um, or countries are, are slightly more dubious uh, and they were hoping that uh, the draft would go uh, further uh, in that it would just uh, call for eye-quarter full phasing out from uh, oil, gas and, and fossil. And, it, you know, it's fascinating to see it uh, playing down in, in French newspapers uh, because then you have a whole um, a lesson of, of uh, French grammar and, and French uh, vocabulary. And the French grammar and vocabulary. I mean, it transitions like compromise and transition of of reasonably simply translatable words, but in terms of reading between the lines, what's the French reaction to to this idea that that compromise and transition seem to be the driving driving agenda here? Well, I mean, they are talking, of course, about the OPEC members in Saudi Arabia that were behind uh, the very poor, in their eyes, uh, first draft that got everyone uh, up in arms uh, against the uh, uh, Sultan al-Jabba. Um, but, of course, now that uh, COP28 has run out uh, of the uh, uh, of time and they're all extremely tired, um, tiredness is, is uh, one of the, uh, the things that comes back in uh, newspapers in in France um, I think on the whole they are they are quite happy with uh, what they they came up with but I think that uh, word transitioning away is going to uh, probably enter uh, the French dictionary soon because uh, I've seen it discussed um, so much in in French newspapers this morning to the point of tiredness. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you for bringing a nice, succinct pressy of what's been, what's been talked about without being too exhausted. Thank you for that, Agnes. Um, let's talk about the, the sort of a couple of parallel narratives which are coming from the European papers this morning. Um, on the one hand, we have this idea of Germany prolonging border controls with Czechia, Poland, Switzerland until... The, the good part of next year, I think February 2024 is when this stops. So we have the idea that Schengen, the, the, the great idea which allows 400 million citizens to move unchecked around Europe is being tested to its point. Yet at the same time, we have this glorious uh, re-emergence of night trains. And there's this, um, the night train uh, between Paris and Berlin uh, went for the first time yesterday. Well, exactly. I mean, uh, the, you know, the uh, the week started with a with a bang with Clément Bourne, or uh, the transport minister in France, uh, taking the first uh, Paris-Berlin uh, night jet uh, train. Uh, because, of course, you could uh, before go from Paris to Berlin, but you needed uh, a to uh, stop at uh, Frankfurt and uh, change at uh, Frankfurt. But also, you you couldn't spend the night on the train. So now it's done, um, and. 
and uh, and after an absence of nine years, because remember, I mean, you know, 10, 20 years ago, night trains were really something that we all enjoyed, especially when we were um, uh, students. Uh, but somehow it had uh, passed out of uh, fashion, but uh, now it's it's come back thanks to the EU also, uh, to, to because train is really the eco-friendly mode of, of transport. And it, it follows in the steps. Remember, 18 months ago, we've got Paris, Vienna, um, and uh, that uh, idea, and, and wonderful uh, idea, really, of linking all the capitals of the EU, um, uh, of the EU, 27 countries. Um, so, yes, Paris, Berlin, it is operated by the Austrian Railways, OBB, beautiful carriages, uh, managed by uh, the German uh, Dutch Bahn and the French SNCF. Uh, three different levels of comforts. If you want to sit back um, for about, what, uh, 13 hours, it will only cost you from 29 euros, uh, that's pretty cheap. Uh, but if you want to, uh, uh, you know, to lie down and to be in a, uh, in comfort and to have your own uh, shower and your own loo, uh, plus breakfast included, it will cost you 99 euros. Um, and there's more. There's more. Uh, in October, uh, but or, or let's say by the end of 2024, uh, we'll have a Zurich in Switzerland linking to Barcelona, but by night and lighting in Montpellier and Lyon uh, in France uh, and still it will be operated by OBB which seems to be having a, a moment um, and I'm told because I haven't uh, been on a night jet train yet uh, that the carriages are brand new and uh, uh, really uh, you know, state of the art um, so, so that's wonderful you know as you say it's a tale of you know there's tension on one hand because of migration and uh, in Europe but on the other hand there's still this European ideal of free movement uh, but of course uh, we all know and that's what uh, Dutch Valle uh, was alluding to uh, uh, this week is that border controls have really returned. I mean it's not new, it's been going on for a few years now and we can see it actually on the train. Uh, if you travel from France to Italy uh, you're stopped and sometimes uh, between 10 and 13, 30 minutes at the uh, uh, border between France and Italy. And it's the same story between Poland and Germany, between um, the Czech Republic uh, and Switzerland and, and Germany as well. Uh, and it's going to continue because um, about, what, 9,000 um unauthorized uh, entries have been stopped uh, last year. So, uh, you know, a tale of to Europe. Uh, finally, let's head to Pompeii, the most magnificent place to go, to, to wander around the walls and imagine the, the days of the past. But what I think a lot of people don't realise is that at least a quarter of Pompeii is still below the ash and still has not been re um, retrieved. Um, Le Monde is reporting on the fact that they have they have found another priceless bit of Pompeii society, haven't they? 
Yes, and it's it never ceases to fascinate. You know, every year new archaeological uh, researches and and new uh, new facts, uh, and and it's wonderful for historians. So new books in the making. Yes, they, this time under a beautiful uh, villa, um, they found uh, the remnants, uh, and not if you look at pictures actually on Le Mans site, it's not so much remnants. You you can see it. There was a um, a strange thing, a um, prison or bakery, uh, or um, both at the same time. That is to say that some slaves and some donkeys uh, were operating a bakery um, uh, with grains. So the you know the uh, the donkeys were just uh, uh, they were just uh, walking uh, around um, and uh, not in a very nice or salubrious condition because they um, it was there was no windows and they were just going around and graining uh, to get the grain in order to uh, make uh, um, the bread and and pastries and the slaves were bakers. Um, so so the Le Monde has a few words for those poor souls, um, saying that it was it showed the brutality and the violence of uh, the slave system in uh, in Pompeii. Um, but also, you see a lot on on the pictures. You see a lot of potteries, for instance, and the remnants of three skeletons, uh, probably those slaves, uh, prisoners, stroke uh, bakers. Agnès Breyer, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Paris. The time here in London is 7.32. You're listening to The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A quick look now at today's other news headlines. A draft of a global agreement has been published at the COP28 summit in Dubai, omitting the reference to the phasing out of fossil fuels. The UN's climate body issued the proposed text after negotiations ran into the early hours. The proposal talks about transitioning away from fossil fuels. If adopted, it would mark the first time in three decades of COP climate summits that nations agree on a concerted move away from oil, gas and coal. The UN General Assembly has voted in favour of a resolution demanding an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. The resolution is non-binding. Meanwhile, the US President has warned that Israel is losing global support over its military actions in Gaza. Joe Biden said the Israeli Prime Minister should change, exposing a new rift in relations between the two leaders. And an assessment by the US military reports that 9 out of 10 Russian personnel deployed at the start of its invasion of Ukraine, or 315,000 people, have either been killed or wounded. The report also assesses that Moscow's losses in personnel and armoured vehicles have set back Russia's military modernisation by 18 years. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Now, Venezuela's President Nicolas Maduro is expected to meet his Guyanese counterpart, Erfan Ali, tomorrow in St. Vincent and the Grenadines. They'll be talking about the growing dispute over the region of Essequibo, two-thirds of Guyana, which Caracas now claims as its own. Well, earlier Monocle's Andrew Muller heard from Carl Greenwich, a Guyanese politician who's representing the country at the International Court of Justice. Mr Greenwich formerly served as Guyana's vice president and foreign minister. And Andrew began by asking him whether he's concerned that Venezuela's trying to preemptively sabotage any judgment the ICJ might make. Well, it is difficult to conclude otherwise. 
given what Venezuela has been doing all along, all along the, the actions they have taken have been intended to divert or undermine deliberations from the ICJ and, or to undermine the conclusion of the ICJ proceedings. How concerned are you now, though, that Nicolas Maduro might actually be serious about attempting to annex this territory of Guyana? Because to be clear, this is not a small part of territory. It is most of your country. And it doesn't seem like he would have gone through the trouble of organising this referendum if he was not seeking a mandate to act. Well, I think that has to be the conclusion that one draws from all the actions being undertaken the fabrication of the history of the region, the comments and misrepresentation of what the obligations of the two parties are under the Geneva Agreement and so forth. It is difficult to conclude that uh, these actions are any anything but malintentioned. Are you surprised that it has escalated to this extent? I'm wondering, thinking back to when you were foreign minister between 2015, 2019, what kind of conversations were you able to have with your Venezuelan counterparts at that point? I know there were quite a few of them while you were foreign minister. Well, thank you for raising that question. It's a very good question. And I put it that way, not to be patronising, but because in most of the press reports, whether they be out of Florida, Miami, or even European press, a memory lapse. Yes, there were many conversations, beginning with the conversation between the two presidents, that is, at the time, President Granger and President Maduro in 2015, and ending with the enhanced mediation process, which was overseen by the Secretary General, of the United Nations, the current Secretary General and his predecessor, those discussions and negotiations were pretty intense, ending at the beginning of 2018. And at no point did we discuss or were we presented with any evidence, any of Venezuela's information that they claim to have had since 1962 about the inadequacies of the 1899 deliberations and award. And so we did have the exchanges, but they were held in reasonably amicable circumstances, not with the bellicosity that we see today with uh, President Maduro accusing, calling President Ali all sorts of names, accusing us of uh, being somehow both dishonest and disreputable for seeking to get support from the international community for what is obviously an outrageous and illegal claim and outrageous and illegal acts in support of that claim. Are you happy with what you've heard from the rest of South America in the last few days since the referendum? Do you feel like other South American countries have taken a hard enough line on Venezuela? Well, I think many of them find it difficult to be too upfront in their criticism of Venezuela for all kinds of reasons. I do not think that the positions they've taken are hard enough, as as you put it, because the peace and stability of the region are at stake. And the, the trigger for initiating the actions that Venezuela seems to have in mind are completely and utterly indefensible, because the story about Venezuela and Venezuela's rights 
in any part of Guyana are entirely fictitious. The historical record and the current record show absolutely no presence of Spanish settlement and colonization in any part of Guyana over any distance for any period. Just very finally, and it is an awful thing for any country to have to contemplate, but if Maduro does feel like he is entitled to act, how able is Guyana to defend itself? Well, Guyana on its own, with its uh, military and civic resources, will defend itself. What one wouldn't one would not expect that a country with a military of the size of Guyana's would be able to deal effectively in any meaningful sense with a force the size of Venezuela's. I mean, you are speaking of, first of all, a population of over 30 million versus a population of less than a million. You're speaking of military forces on the Venezuelan side of over two, 300,000 military troops compared to not even 10,000 Guyanese. So it is not an equation that reflects any balance whatsoever. That was the former vice president of Guyana, Carl Greenidge, speaking to Monocle's Andrew Muller. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle Radio. It's 8.40am in Zurich, 2.40am in Washington, D.C. And in the United States, a new book is topping the bestseller list just in time for Christmas. It's called Oath and Honour, and it's written by former Congresswoman Liz Cheney. She describes it as both a memoir and a warning. In her book, the former of the former vice president, the daughter of the former vice president, Dick Cheney, is sounding the alarm about the consequences of re-electing the former president, Donald Trump. But with less than a year to go before election day, it's not clear that millions of Americans will heed Liz Cheney's warning. Journalist Simon Marks sent us this report from Washington. This time last year, Liz Cheney was centre stage, one of only two Republicans in the House of Representatives who had dared to incur Donald Trump's fury by agreeing to participate in the congressional committee that Democrats formed to investigate the deadly uprising on Capitol Hill of January the 6th, 2021. The riots brought Cheney and all her fellow Republicans to a fork in the road. Unlike those who opted to stick by Trump, she decided they were the clearest in indication yet of the danger he poses to American democracy. Here's what she said at the committee's final session on December the 19th last year. Among the most shameful of this committee's findings was that President Trump sat in the dining room off the Oval Office watching the violent riot at the Capitol on television. For hours, he would not issue a public statement instructing his supporters to disperse and leave the Capitol, despite urgent pleas from his White House staff and dozens of others to do so. For hours, he would not do it. Donald Trump, she thundered that afternoon, was unfit for office, and she indicated that the committee's work was designed to fuel the former president's prosecution that she hoped at the time would remove him from the field of political battle. Prosecutors are considering the implications of the conduct that we describe in our report, as are citizens all across our nation. 
Fast forward one year and prosecutors have certainly kept their side of that bargain. Trump ends 2023 facing more than 90 felony charges in four separate jurisdictions. But the other side of the coin, the public's evaluation of Donald Trump, well, that remains up for grabs, with polls indicating that Liz Cheney has not yet got her man. So she's giving the effort another substantial go. One of the things that we see happening today is a sort of a, a sleepwalking into a dictatorship in the United States. That interview on CBS was broadcast the day her memoir, Oath and Honor, hit America's bookshops. Over its 384 pages, she presents the case for the public to reject Trump's efforts to win back the keys to the Oval Office, for fear, she says, that he'll never agree to leave it. Do you think no he would question. try to stay in power forever? Uh, absolutely. I mean, he's already done it once. He's already attempted to seize power, and he was stopped um, thankfully, and, and for the good of the nation and the republic. Uh, but, but he said he will do it again. He's expressed no remorse for what he did. She spoke there on NBC. It has been impossible over the last 10 days to escape her. Liz Cheney is everywhere promoting her book and the case against the runaway frontrunner in the race for the Republican Party's presidential nomination. On CNBC... Here's the bottom line. We can survive bad policy. We cannot survive a president who torches the Constitution. On NPR. Every member of Congress, if you asked them, you know, listen, if, if you have to choose between the Constitution and your own political survival, every one of them will say, well, of course, we will choose the Constitution. But, but as it turned out, when it came down to it, most of them or too many of them, didn't. And on CNN, where she hinted she might literally try to stop Trump by running herself as an independent in the presidential election. I'm going to look at this over the next couple of months through the lens of how do we stop Donald Trump. And, and on some level, it's not about me. It's not about um, what I'm going to do or not do. I look at it very much from the perspective of right now, Absolutely, we have to keep our eye on the goal of stopping him. In that regard, whether to try and siphon votes away from Trump, Cheney faces a difficult calculation. She is now a former member of the House of Representatives after Republicans in her home state of Wyoming deselected her, meeting out punishment for her decision to break with Trump and take part in the investigation of him. Trump loyalists, and there are millions of them, exude confidence that her critique will not sway many voters who are currently backing him. She says her dad, her dad told her right before January 6th, darling, protect the republic. Donald Trump's political adviser Steve Bannon dismissing both Liz Cheney and her father, the former vice president, on his daily webcast. Trump haters from way back. Darling, protect the republic. Well, look, uh, lady, you're going to get your day. You're going to get your, as we say in the Navy, your turn in the barrel. Ma'am, protect the republic, dear. That's good, from a guy that's going out of his way to destroy it in the 21st century. Sebastian Gorka is another Trump insider deployed to turn against Liz Cheney and the rapidly disappearing moderate wing of the party that she represents. When you have people like Liz Cheney talk about President Trump as a fascist or a Nazi, what, what are you inciting people to do? If, if this really were the threat, then 
Are you inciting people to use violence against President Trump? There is, of course, no incitement to violence contained in the former Congresswoman's book. But the vehemence with which the Trump team is attacking her is further evidence of the challenge she faces in her efforts to make him less proximate to the seat of power. Nothing over the last three years has stopped the former president. Not the congressional investigation, not the criminal indictments, and almost certainly not a book, even if it is currently being devoured by readers who buy the message Liz Cheney is selling, but were probably never planning to vote for Trump in the first place. For Monocle Radio, I'm Simon Marks in Washington. My thanks to Simon Marks for that report. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle Radio. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Talk business now with Rachel Puppetsoni, national business reporter and presenter at ABC News, who joins us on the line now from Perth. Good afternoon, Rachel. Hi, Emma. Good to have you with us on Monocle Radio. Um, let's just examine this rather seismic shift in car manufacturing and exporting. Um, China is about to overtake Japan as the biggest car exporter in the world. That's a big step, isn't it? It's huge, and and it's a, a market that Japan has dominated for such a long time. And we've really seen China's manufacturing and exporting capabilities really ramp up in just a couple of years, Emma. In 2020, China uh, exported about 1 million cars. Uh, and this year, they're on track to export uh, close to 4 million, at least um, for, for the 10 months of the year, uh, the first 10 months of the year, they've exported 3.92 million vehicles. So that's a huge jump in just a couple of years, essentially a million vehicles every year. A big part of that has to do with Russia. It's its biggest customer. It's purchased 750,000 vehicles to October this year. And what's driven that is that uh, traditional suppliers to Russia, like Japan, uh, which is uh, currently, uh, perhaps for not too much longer, the biggest car exporter in the world, uh, the US, Europe, they've all pulled out of supplying Russia because of uh, its uh, war in Ukraine. So that's opened a door there for China to really see such huge exponential growth in the last couple of years. Also, what's driving this is demand for electric vehicles. Now, they made up about a quarter of all of China's exports this year, uh, and that's uh, about a 90% more than the year before that they exported when it comes to electric vehicles. Japan uh, is on track to export about 3.59 million vehicles uh, this year, so that's uh, less than China in the in the first 10 months of the year. We don't have official details or data from Japan yet, uh, but obviously um, in the coming months we'll get those sort of uh, full year results. Japan, uh, as I said, has so far been the dominant supplier, especially for countries like Australia. It is the number one supplier of vehicles here. Uh, But as the demand for EVs really ramps up, China is leading the way there because it is such a, a, a dominant manufacturer of electric vehicles. So 
consumers are demanding more EVs. China is leading the way. Japan has quite a bit of work to catch up if it wants to um, really tap into that growing market. Indeed. I mean, how does Japan catch up on this, given the fact that the two big reasons why China's doing so well is A, Russia, and the conflict with Ukraine is not going away, nor is the transition to electric vehicles. That's right. And China has such a dominance in that in terms of all the, the parts, I guess, and, and, and access to um, processing all the minerals that go into EVs. And we have seen through the course of this year, uh, places like the United States with their uh, Inflation Reduction Act really trying to uh, diversify and pull out of some of that sort of manufacturing that happens in China when it comes to microchips, for example, um, processing of rare earths and other critical minerals that are required uh, in, in great numbers for electric vehicles like nickel and copper uh, and many of the rare earths. So we're seeing uh, this sort of shift, I guess, from other countries away from China. But these kinds of changes take time. Uh, So it's unlikely that Japan will be able to cling on to that top spot. As you say, the the Russia component is hugely significant. uh, And as long as Japan, sorry, China seems to be the sole supplier to Russia and Russia's demands are growing. Uh, there's sort of no room for anyone else, I guess, to take that top spot. But I, I've no doubt that Japan and other countries like the US through Europe uh, will want to make sure that they cling on to as much of their market as they possibly can. Very briefly, Rachel, um, let's talk about perhaps a change at the top at Boeing, although you talked about clinging on. The retirement age of CEO uh, for, 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 from 65 to 70 means that um, the current incumbent means that he might want to stay along a little bit longer. Yeah, that's right. So that's David Calhoun. Now, he came into the role in 2020. This was off the back of some pretty disastrous years for Boeing. Uh, They had two fatal plane crashes with their 737 jets. Uh, They've had uh, in subsequent years, uh, like many other companies, supply chain issues and cost issues. Uh, There's speculation uh, that uh, uh, one of their key executives, uh, Stephanie Pope, who's just been promoted to chief operating officer, may end up becoming chief executive officer but as you say not for a couple of years uh, because David Calhoun is 66 he's just um, uh, as you said they've changed the retirement age in the company to 70 so we know he's got at least a couple of years there earlier in the year Boeing gave him over five million dollars in retention grant that doesn't vest until 2025 so I think it's safe to say he's there and for at least another couple of years but a lot of speculation in what is a very male-dominated industry that Stephanie Pope is being primed currently just appointed the chief operating officer but to be promoted to chief executive officer that would be huge a huge thing if that were to happen in a couple of years. Rachel Pupasoni thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle Radio. Now, fans of the classic Japanese anime films such as My Neighbor Totoro and Spirited Away will be delighted to hear that the film's director, Hayao Miyazaki, is back with what's believed to be his final movie, The Boy and the Heron. Save me. Save me, my dog. What exactly are you? <laughs> your mother. She's awaiting your rescue. I'll be your guide. 
Its release in Japan earlier this year was marked by the tiniest of fanfares, a single poster image. But despite this, it earned more than $52 million in its home country. And this popularity, indeed, of Japanese cinema in general is spreading, especially in the US. Let's hear now from the Monocle Radio regular and film critic Karen Krasanovich. Good morning, Karen. Good morning. So The Boy and the Heron occupies the top spot in North America. How big a surprise is that? That Well, it was projected because the box office is actually quite weak at the minute with domestic supply. And uh, we've had some big titles for Thanksgiving, but those are waning. So it's it's lovely to see, a, I guess this is a family movie, although it has many spiritual elements and a lot of talk of death and poverty and things like that. But it is still animated and it's still just over two hours. And I think it's it's a film that people seem to be going to uh, with regularity, the the, uh, the word of mouth is very strong. So it's great that we've got something this special uh, on our screens in December. And it's not on any streaming platforms either. You have to go to the cinema to watch it. Yes, that is correct so far. That's right. And, but the the thing is that, that Studio Ghibli is has such a strong reputation for storytelling and also hand-drawn animation. There's a big difference. It attracts people that know about it and people that are curious to see something good and different. So we see, you know, the classic Miyazaki doing very, very well globally, but it's not just that which is hitting the box office, is it? I mean, if you're a a fan of Godzilla, indeed Godzilla minus one, you're going to be equally happy about the way that Japan is is moving within the, the, the global cinema. Well, I'm smiling because I'm thinking, who isn't a fan of Godzilla? <laughs> I love Godzilla. I just realized, looking over all of my old reviews, that I've seen a lot of Godzilla movies. Um, yes, that's right. This is the 33rd installment in the franchise of Godzilla, and it's number three right now in the the, the American box office. It's made up 25 million cumulatively. Boy in the Heron uh, has been out only one week. Uh, Godzilla has been out two. Uh, and this movie, I went to, I'd heard great things that had closed the, the uh, Tokyo Film Festival. Um, and it's incredible. It's, it's a really, they're calling it a popcorn movie, and it sure is. It's the kind of movie you want to sit and watch and enjoy. So is this something, I mean, do we say that this is now, because we have two films doing incredibly well globally mm-hmm. that come from Japan, are we at the point where we can call this a movement, or is this just happy chance at the minute? At the minute, I think it's happy chance. I, I don't think it's been planned this way, but I think it's great that streaming, to a certain extent, has made uh, at least the American domestic market, perhaps global, um, a little more uh, against um, watching subtitles. They used to complain, I, I can't read and watch the movie, but now they're doing it. And I think that's an important step. And just being open to other people's real, I mean, these are two hugely qual- quality uh, quality made films. And um, the, the kind of thing that even if you don't think you like a big lizard that's mutated with um, you know nuclear power, uh, just give it a try. Who doesn't? Um, just briefly, if you are dipping your toe into Japanese cinema, where do you start? Well, I would say if you've got children, perhaps go to the animated one. But if, if you like popcorn like I do, Godzilla Minus One is just over two hours And the sound editing stay till the very end because the sound is incredible. 
Karen Krasanovich, thank you so much, as ever, for joining us on The Globalist. And that's all the time we have for today's programme. The warmest of thanks to all my guests and also to our producers, Sophie Monaghan-Coombs, Christy O'Grady and Emma Searle. Our researcher was Niamh Akwe and our studio manager was Callum McLean. After the headlines, more music on the way. The briefing is live at midday here in London. Hope you can join me for that. We'll be getting the latest on the adoption of the resolution at COP28 in Dubai. And The Globalist is back at the same time tomorrow. I'll be behind the microphone for that as well. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.